This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hello. You've had an emergency as we started recording. Yes, indeed. I've had a filling emergency. What happened? Did you bite into some toffee? What was it? I don't. It might have been a sort of hummus sandwich. Not quite so glamorous. It's diff- difficult to, to damage a filling with hummus. Well, it felt like it was falling out. Um, maybe it was Rivita actually. I'm quite a one for the Rivita. Sounds more like um, it. And it was falling. I thought this seems to have moved. And then actually, as we were doing this, we were recording some interviews for the summer. It fell out in the middle of the interview, but I I carried it off with a plum. I think you'll notice. I had no idea. Exactly. And we should do, you know, like a spot the ball competition. We should do a spot yeah. the filling falling out competition and see if listeners can highlight the exact point in our summer episodes at which Ed's filling fell out and whoever gets the closest wins a prize. Oh, that's a good idea, isn't mm. it? So so this is slightly anticipating our um, subject for this week, but um, the may or may not have escaped your attention that the Hampstead Ponds were closed because of the flooding that took place in the sewage. There was a sort of sewage anxiety. Mm. And so I was then... On Monday morning, um, so I decided to go to the Lido and more to follow on Lidos or Lidos. I I get there at 10 to 7 or 5 to 7, feeling incredibly virtuous because it only opens at 7. There's quite a big queue. I sort of run the gauntlet of the queue, at which point, halfway down the queue, Alistair Campbell shouts at me, Pond Life, 
The only reason we're having to queue is for people like you. Well, oh, so there's a division between people who use the Lido and people who use the Pond. We are, we are Pond Life. So then we end up in the Lido or Lido. And basically, Alistair doesn't really like the fact that it's so full. He says there's normally 10 people. There's so many people here. So he sort of sidles up to me and generally sort of complains about the state of politics and the state of the world. I mean, in the I in the water, the, is, are you in in the water yeah, together? And yeah, he's sidling yeah, up yeah. to you. It, it, yeah, yeah. Ooh. It wasn't the if I have to say it wasn't the most restful <laughs> form of form of early. You know how it's like I go in to sort of you know what does Alice to say? Expand my jam jar. You know, sort of lose you know lose myself in nature. You know, clear the wash mind. Away the cares, wash away the cares of the world. Mm. Alistair grumping at me like. At 7 a.m. in the morning, I came back and I said to Justine, well, this is how, oh, I think I, she'd gone to work. I think I rang her and I said, well, this was my morning. <laughs> it was definitely peak North London. <laughs> wow. And, and how was Lido swimming? Well, I don't want to sort of, you know, do in our own episode because I'm like very open to mm. people's sort of taste. I'm quite glad to be back in the ponds. Mm. I quite like the interaction with the ducks. I mean... The duck versus Alistair. The duck wins. <laughs> uh, I mean, not if you want to sort of discuss politics or mental health or so many of the other issues that he, you can have great conversations with about. But if you want to sort of get away from it all. Give you a duck any day. Duck. A mallard over Campbell. All right. Well, it sounds like there's this clear dividing line between the pond life and the... the what, who are the Lido people then? What do we call them? The Lidoites? I don't know. Lidoites. Great. But I don't think I don't think I'm not sure it's a sort of Man United Man City sort of situation mm. because I think it is sort of I mean I think you I think it's a sort of both and not either or you know what I mean I'm not anti Lidos I'm sort of pro Lidos Do you think that is typical just, of one of your kind though the pond life are, are you a centrist in this and only this regard Oh do you, oh I wonder yeah you're trying like to a, bridge uh, what is, bridge the gap What is it centrist dad Yeah I wonder um I wonder if what you think that the you think that there might be a sort of hierarchy where the pond life people look down on the Lido people or the Lido people look yes, down very on the tribal, pond life Yes, very tribal, very tribal, yes. Well, that's a good question to ask our guests. I mean, we're slightly getting ahead of our skis, aren't we? We are, but I'm, uh, I'm excited to talk about this. I have to say I like the idea of a Lido perhaps a bit more because I, um, I don't love reeds and things brushing against my leg. That's so interesting because when I first went into the ponds, I was very anxious about the sort of creatures of the deep. Mm. <laughs> Um, and I sort of wondered whether and so I was, on. well, I was wondering if I was going to sort of get eaten by a piranha <laughs> or something, and sort of you know, jaws or you know, this piranha I, has been in it, the in the pond at Hampstead, biding its time until you got in there. It's, it was your fear, exactly. But you know, it's just I literally never think about it now. And, and what about like sediment on your feet? Well, you don't ever put your feet on the ground. Oh, okay. So there's no sort of sediment anxieties. Okay, okay. So you definitely prefer the clinical if, if, chlorinated If I'm on situation. holiday and there's a swimming pool and there's a sandy beach, give me the swimming pool any day. Uh, so I don't no, like I the, sa- I don't like the, the sand stuck to my feet. Um, I, I, sort of see the, I do see the sand situation. By the way, I, the photographer thing has not happened so far. That you know of. Maybe they're compiling a dossier. Maybe they're going to publish a coffee table book of pictures of you in your swimming kit. That is a good point. I feel I can go for the tight-fitting swimming trunks now. (laughs) I think it would be a nice companion for Go Big. 
you could have go big with the book of big ideas and then go small, a photo book of you and your tiny swimming trunks. Tell your publisher. I don't think it's quite... Do you know what I'd like to get? Do you remember those pens that you could turn them upside down and, and the ink would run down and somebody would slowly undress? I'd like one of those in you and your swimming trunks. Oh, please. Right, let's, uh, let's get into what we're talking about in the episode then. Well, this week, I think I've rather given it away, Geoffrey. Uh, this week, we're talking about the people-powered Lido, or Lido revolution. Public outdoor pools were built in towns and cities across the UK in the early part of the 20th century. But... They fell into decline after the Second World War with the rise of cheap holidays abroad and financial pressures on local authorities, which led many to close. However, the last decade or so, we see a revival of Lido's Lido's around the country. A number have been saved or reopened by community groups, and there are now new Lido's Lido's planned in places including Brighton Hull and Salford. We're going to be talking about the history of Lido's with journalist Chris Beanland and asking him how Britain's Lidos compares with others around the world. Then we're talking to Lido expert Emma Pusill about why we're seeing a revival of Lidos and some of the benefits and challenges that come with them being run by local communities. And finally, we're talking to campaigner Deborah Aden about why she's calling for a new Lido on Merseyside and where the campaign has got to. What's your reason to be cheerful, Jeff? Are you familiar with the work of super furry animals? They're a pop group. Yeah, yeah you, you don't remember that wa- wave of Welsh bands in the mid to late 90s? Gorky Zygotic Monkey, Catatonia, not ringing any bells? Gordon Brown. And of course, yeah, he was eating your life at the time. Well, yeah. Super Furry Animals this week have released a track from 20 years ago. They collaborated with Paul McCartney and they have released the isolated track of his performance in the studio. Uh, and for a Beatles not like me, it's amazing to hear. I, I know this is going to be slightly in contravention of copyright, but would you like to hear just a little bit? Definitely. Listen to this. Sounds like me eating a Mars bar. It's Paul McCartney eating celery. They got him to sit and eat celery rhythmically into a microphone based on something he'd done for the Beach Boys decades before. And now you can sit and listen to one minute and one seconds of Paul McCartney eating celery. And that is my reason to be cheerful this week. Do you think I could have a hit eating celery? Well, I did think as I was listening to that, Ed is always looking for his musical outlet. This could be your thing, rhythmic celery munching. Sounds good. I'll buy you a stick in time for next week's episode. You can do some practising. I like it. Honestly, there's quite controversial in my household. I really like celery and Justine cannot abide celery. Celery, really, um, it's an underrated vegetable. Very interesting. Keep revealing yourself. Yeah. What's your, what's your reason to be cheerful? Well, my reason to be cheerful is that I was on stage at the Royal Festival Hall this week, this past of week, course. with Jane Garvey and Fee Glover on the Fortunately podcast. Oh, they're brilliant, the pair of them. Um, no, it was great. And we talked about politics. We talked about... Uh, we, we ended up sort of planning a trip to Fabric Nightclub with me, Jane, and Theresa May. Wow. I mean, they said, what's the one place you're going to go when lockdown's properly lifted? And I said, Fabric, because I didn't know what else to say. <laughs> then I sort of said to Jane, well, you and I should go to Fabric together. And then we were talking about Theresa May, and we suggested that she should come along too. Well, we know that Theresa May's a very good dancer. Yes. We know I'm not a very good dancer. Yes. So that's that's a good starting point, isn't it? I mean, it? it would be box office, wouldn't it? 
I am busy that night, sadly. I know you've not invited me, but I just want to do uh, get in with a preemptive strike. <laughs> Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, we're going to begin by uh, getting enthused, learning a bit about the history and a bit about this revival from the journalist Christopher Beanland, who is the author of. Well, here's the first question, really. Is it Lido or Lido? To be honest, I feel like people should just go for whatever they prefer. I say Lido personally, but yeah, some people say Lido. People are kind of arguing about the, the etymology and where we, where we get it from. It's probably come from, uh, from Italy, where, of course, they would say Lido. When did it first enter the English language, Chris? Do you happen to know? What we can see is obviously for a long time, people were bathing and they were building swimming pools like right back to the, the Indus civilization and the, Otto- the Romans and the Ottomans and then through to the Victorian, uh, Victorian age. But where it really comes to the fore is in uh, the first half of the 20th century, where you see this um, kind of Lido explosion where they're building lots of different ones, especially in, um, in Britain. And it becomes, you know, something that everyone would have seen in their town or their village. Lido's everywhere, really. It was kind of a part of that um, trend that we had for modernism, uh, where people were thinking about new ways of living and water and swimming was very healthy and seen as, you know, the, the sort of clean future that we all wanted. So that was the kind of era that it really came to the fore. And what about you? What about you, Chris? Do you Are you a Lido swimmer? How did you get into this whole extravaganza? I've been a swimmer since I was little and I write in my book um, about my, my kind of fond memories of being taken by my parents swimming when I was young. And I'm sure a lot of us have those memories of swimming when we're in, when we're in school and we'd have those like life-saving drills where you'd have to wear your pyjamas to the swimming pool and jump in and pick up a brick with you know I'm not quite sure why we were doing that why we had to rescue a brick from the swimming pool but we all seem to have those memories I think it's something that's really kind of brings back those fond memories of childhood I swim every day now I often go to London Fields Lido which is my nearest uh nearest one in London but I love you know swimming in the sea in lakes in rivers in Lidos I think they're all they're all really interesting but one of the things that I thought was really interesting about Lidos was the architecture that went with them as well and like what that was trying to say because sometimes you have these really extravagant um, pieces of architecture you know the hotels and the private houses where, where you're kind of flaunting the swimming pool um, then you have these municipal pools which were um, sometimes a bit more sort of plain and work a day they were for the people but they were celebrating civic virtue and the power of uh, the the municipality that was going to give uh, access to swimming uh, to, to everyone uh, irrespective of how much they earn talk to us a bit about so, so you mentioned in the history there this this kind of modern idealism in the early part of the 20th century was that just something that was happening in britain or was it happening in parallel elsewhere in europe and and around the world i mean are these types of pools common in other countries does it happen in parallel i think a lot of people do tend to focus on what's been happening in britain um but yeah you can see this pattern all around the world so um you see in america during the new deal era there were some huge uh, pools being built like uh, mccarran park in brooklyn which is one of the largest i've ever seen it's got space for thousands of people but you see a lot of them in america and australia as well um it's really something that took hold around the world 
and the um you know we're we're in the midst of this revival um the the decline that happened before that was was that something specific to the UK and what was going on perhaps in terms of local authority budgets or is is that pattern also see something you see replicated everywhere yeah you're right on that point jeff um that was definitely a point uh, there was definitely a point where um local authorities were getting very squeezed um on on their budgets especially in uh, in 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 the sort of thatcher era when loads of services were, were being cut and uh lots of lidos were uh, closing down around around that time but it's almost like fashion in a way as well some things go out of fashion and come back into fashion and i think outdoor swimming for a while um towards the second half of the 20th century was seen as being kind of old fashioned. They were building these um, huge new leisure centers with uh, indoor slides. And um, there was one in real with a monorail and um, the Rod Hull and Emu Emu show was filmed there and people wanted their leisure center. um, And uh, you kind of see a parallel actually with um, uh, shopping in a way because the high streets were declining at that time and people were building shopping malls and they thought that everyone wanted to be inside. Um, but yeah, now we've, we've kind of flipped that people want to be outside. They want to be swimming outside, probably shopping outside at a market or something as well. I think that's probably more popular now. Can I ask you about the ones around the world? I'll tell you one that really caught my eye in your book. And, and I should say it's got, they've got fantastic pictures, uh, in your book and I would, I would really recommend it. Um, Lake Bledlido in Slovenia. Um, now, I, there's a swan here. Um, I like a good swan, I mean, to be swimming with, and a couple of ducks. Talk to us. Have you been to Lake Bled? I have, Ed, yeah. And it's a really, really nice place. It's um, Yeah, they've kind of carved out a section of the lake um, and made, made a pool there. And, yeah, you can swim the swans and the ducks and the fishes. It's very, it's very, very nice. Why is that a Lido? I mean, in other words, is the Highgate Ponds a Lido? Yeah, this is the thing. In different countries, they do refer to they do refer to it in diff, in different ways. Um, when we were when we were um, talking about this book, we we were saying, oh, you know, should we just stick to the um, ones that are completely man made, where they've just you know dug a hole from a park and then built built a building around it, or maybe we should cover some interesting one, interesting other ones as well. But it's interesting to see that the passion that that you Ed, and a lot of other people have for wild swimming is reflected in the kind of pools that are being designed now and going forward, and they're often floating pools or natural pools. Um, and I went to see one in Switzerland, which. Uh, is completely man-made, but they've made it look like it was a lake and there's no chlorine used. They filter it with reeds and all the buildings are made of wood. Jeff's anti-reed. I think Je- Jeff's not so keen on the old reeds. <laughs> I don't love a reed brushing against my leg. I mean, I came so close to a duck this morning, honestly, and I was just amazed at how cl- how close the duck let me go. And I was thinking, God, I wish I had a, f- a phone with me to then take a picture of the duck. Um, what's the best... What's your best swim in the UK and elsewhere? I think because there's so many Lidos, I think what I would say to people is just go out and explore different ones. And the ones that I've loved, uh, ones where I've maybe been, um, yeah, just, you know, I went to see my brother who lives in Yorkshire and uh, there's one near Sheffield called Hathersage Lido in this lovely uh, village um, 
uh, in the in the Peak District, which is kind of run by the community, and one in Stonehaven in Scotland, which is also run by the community. Those small ones where you feel like it's really a, a real sort of part of the community, everyone knows each other. They're fantastic, um, and we couldn't we couldn't have a talk without mentioning Australia because they have really really amazing uh, ones like in Bronte and Coogee, all those Sydney suburbs. Very swimming's huge in Australia, so they have they have really great pools there as well. I mean, last question: Do you think that as you've looked at the trajectory and the history of Lido's, I mean, it does say something, doesn't it, about the commitment to public goods and public amenities? I mean, in other words. This path, this trajectory is, I mean, is not coincidental. And, and I mean, maybe the revival, we don't quite know where the revival is going to go, but it does say something about us as a country, doesn't it? Absolutely. And you can't ignore that, that fact. We were building these things um, as public amenities and they were for the public. And I think the best places are the ones where you really see lots of different people from different uh, different parts of the world, different parts of life, and you can see everyone just hanging out together, like a beach or anything like that. It's just a or a park, maybe. It's just a great public space, I think. Great public asset. More reeds. That's what we want, Ajf. Fewer reeds. Fewer reeds. But I'd like to coax the the ducks into the lidos. Yeah. <laughs> maybe that's the future. Yeah, we need to get a lido with more. Yeah, more ducks put in them. Yeah. More ducks. Uh, Christopher Beanland, journalist and author of the book, which I, I really loved looking through. Lido, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much. To talk further about Lidomania, um, I'm delighted to say that we're joined by Emma Pusil, who is co-author of The Lido Guide and volunteer at the Portishead Lido. Emma, is it Lido? It is Lido when I say it, but if anybody else wants to say it Lido, that is absolutely okay. I mean, all the Lido people are just so nice. They're like, we don't mind how you pronounce it. So it's not like scone or scone where there's a a perceived poshness or a north-south divide. It's just whatever you feel, that's what you should go with. I, I think as far as we're concerned, Janet and I, who wrote the book, we're just happy that people are talking about them. So we really don't mind whether they say Lido, Lido, baths, open air pool, all fine by us. Tell us, um, how did you become interested in Lido's? So I moved to Portishead uh, because it has an outdoor Which is in Bristol, basically. Sorry, we should tell people. Yeah, just outside. Yeah, just outside Bristol, just off the M5. Uh, I'd been here for a day out with my daughter, who was quite small then. She was in the infant school and we had such a lovely time that on the way home in the car, she said, well, Mummy, that was just so nice. Why can't we live there? Um, So we do, to cut a long story short. We live 10 minutes walk from the front door of the pool. So that was really how I first got interested in them because it is a community run pool and I started volunteering there and that proved to be a great way for both of us to integrate with our local communities and out of the interest in 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 what I like to think of as my Lido even though it isn't really I became interested in all the others that are still surviving around the country. And tell us about the Lido at Porter's Head that you uh, volunteer at. 
So it is a fabulous community-run facility. It was built in the early 60s and it's quite iconic. It's got a very unique sort of concrete structure that is painted in all sorts of really bright colours. It looks very Mediterranean and it's got some diving boards, which sadly are no longer in use because, frankly, there was just never enough water underneath them. It's not really safe. But they have an amazing almost Art Deco shape to them, even though the pool was built in the 60s. It's 33 metres long it's heated it is right on the banks of the bristol channel we've got wonderful sun terraces um and and a little toddler pool as well the baby pool actually this week has been a really good news story because with this the slight easing of pandemic restrictions we've been able to reopen that for the first time since the pandemic started so that that has felt to us like a little step towards normality and in 2019 you co-wrote the lido guide Talk to us about that endeavour and what you learned in the process about the state of Lidos in the UK, how many there are, how many there used to be, all of that jazz. I met Janet, who's my co-author, via Twitter, actually, and it transpired that we only lived a matter of seven or eight miles apart. At that time, she was living in central Bristol and I was living in Portishead. And and she was clearly somebody else within the kind of Twitter Lido world who was very interested in them and had swum in a lot of them. And I'd recognised for a while that there was just an absence of coherent information about all of the publicly accessible Lidos that remain. And I worked out that Janet knew quite a lot about this. And so I would find myself whenever I wanted to visit another pool or whenever I was going on a trip, dropping her a tweet or a message and saying, you know, can you tell me where are the Lidos near Newcastle? That kind of thing. And gradually between the the two of us, we realised that if we needed this service, then probably so did other people. And we thought we had better get off our backsides and, and write a book, write the guidebook. And we are really seeing a, a, a Lido revival, aren't we? I think we are. I think we're in the early stages. I think people as as swimmers and members of the general public are beginning to understand their value again. I think they've historically had a lot of value. We we used to have hundreds of them all over the UK, if not thousands, probably, by the time you take all the small ones into consideration. In the book, we've got about 120, 130. So that's what we're down to. We don't talk about hotel pools and private health club pools. These are just pools where you can turn up and pay your money and swim. And they've been lost for a lot of different reasons. But I think as a result of the pandemic, people are kind of looking for a little bit of a holiday experience at home. And outdoor swimming is something that people do associate with being away on holiday. And of course, Lido's had the advantage of being able to open before indoor pools did under the regulations. So there is definitely an increased awareness of them. And some county councils, I think, are beginning to recognise the value of what they once had, but have lost and are actively working to promote them again. Can I just ask, I don't think I'd heard of a Lido until I moved to London. Are they more prevalent in, in the south of the country or certain parts of the country? And if, if so, why is that? Sadly, they absolutely are. The overwhelming majority of them are clustered around London and the southeast and the southwest, particularly Devon. Devon has got a lot of Lidos. I think the reasons why there are so few in the north of England are complex. I don't believe it's climate related. For instance, there's a pool in Hathersage that is open heated year round. So if they can do it in the Peak District, we can do it anywhere. 
they are really a complete barometer of wealth inequality. And I'm sorry to say, I think that's absolutely what is behind this. So they benefit in the South from greater wealth in two ways, really. Local authorities might have a bit more money to spend on them. They might have been a bit less hasty to get rid of them in the first place. But also when people are taking over a pool from their local authority, when the the local authority wants to get rid of it, if you are in a more affluent area, you are more likely to have people who can make grassroots donations. You're more likely to have people who've got the time and the skills to be volunteering. So sadly, that really is the bottom line. And I would love, I, I would love to see more. In those. I mean, Manchester, Manchester is crying out for a Lido. You know, that, that is one of the biggest cities in the UK. Hull City Council is just investing a significant amount of money in bringing one of their outdoor pools back into public use. So councils are beginning to recognise that. And I would love to see some of the bigger cities in the north blazing a trail for that. So just for those who sort of um, haven't yet caught the bug... How would you explain the difference between swimming in a Lido and swimming in a indoor pool? Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Because you would think, well, how much difference can there be? They're just holes in the ground full of water, right? I mean, how much different can that be? But it, it I mean, it's it's such a different experience. It almost doesn't bear description. I, I, I think the most obvious factor, obviously, the most obvious factor is that you've got the weather on your shoulders and that is going on all around you now some people think that lidos are only for hot sunny days but they're really not just for the sunshine i mean you're getting wet anyway the overwhelming majority of them are heated these days so you know and there isn't really anything like i mean one of the most memorable swims i've ever had was in a raging gale with hailstones i could just feel needling my arms every time my arms broke the surface to recover over my head and you're not going to get that in an indoor pool you're just not going to get the birds you're not going to get the clouds and the shadows and the sunrises and the sunsets so it adds a lot i think to the sensory experience it's not just ploughing up and down a tank full of water and are you a wild swimmer as well or are you more a lido swimmer well no i was i was an outdoor swimmer before i was a lido swimmer so i've kind of gone in the other direction most people lidos are the kind of gateway drug to wild swimming if you like they start in an outdoor pool and think wow this is amazing so i've now got to get in the sea and the river and the lakes i sort of slightly went in the other direction although i do still swim in the sea and and rivers and and lakes and you know still very much enjoy that Emma, a lot of the, the uh, I guess, the media coverage about the revival of outdoor swimming has focused on the fact that it's, it's almost become this um, sort of middle class cliche, not um, pointing fingers at Ed or, or anything like that. But but in, in Portishead, are you seeing that it's different people across the community? And, and how, how do you make sure you get, you know, everyone into the Lido and you know not it's brilliant that anyone's swimming but how how do you make sure it's something for everyone we are a community run pool so serving all of our community is really important for us and I have to draw a line a bit between what our business model is at the moment during pandemic restrictions when things are very different and what our business model is in the before times if I can call it that so if I if I can talk about what things were like before the pandemic Uh, I've been swimming at that Lido since 2012 and there had not been a price rise 
for the entirety of that period. There still hasn't been a price rise, although during the pandemic, we can't afford to offer concessions. So we used to have an adult rate and there would be concessions for retired people and for children. Another very important thing that we did before the pandemic was subsidise swimming for members of our local community by offering a season ticket. So you could buy a season ticket either as an individual or a couple or a family and and provided you were able to use the Lido reasonably often, probably no more than a couple of times a week, by the end of the season, you would be absolutely quids in. Your, Your swimming would be a lot cheaper. So my daughter and I, characteristically, had swum the value of our season ticket by the middle of June. So after that, we were basically swimming for free. So those sorts of initiatives, I think, are really important. And we think hard about accessibility. So we have a wet room, there's level access, we have steps with handrails for for people who are less mobile. Swimming in general can sometimes be a middle class sport. And and, and we do live in quite an affluent area. So we don't have some of the, the, the social problems that perhaps other parts of the country do. But nevertheless, we like to think that we do our best to be a warm welcome for all. And and what does it do for the community? You know, you've talked about the the feeling of it, and we're we're aware of the health benefits. But as 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 a place that serves a purpose for a community, what does a Lido provide? Well, I mean, yeah, you mentioned the health benefits. I I I think one of the things I would like to say about that is is there's a widening access element to a Lido. So we're also lucky in this town to have an indoor twenty five meter pool, but we have a lot of swimmers who come and and just would never dream of swimming at the indoor pool. And and that's not any kind of snobbery or anything like that. It's just that that is not an environment that they feel at home in. They associate that, rightly or wrongly, with kind of elite swimmers and athletes and people training and swimming lessons for children. And and we kind of offer, or Lido's generally, not just Portishead, can offer a, a somewhat more relaxed environment than that. So we definitely get people coming who aren't going elsewhere, which is brilliant news. I think because we're volunteer run, we provide a degree of social cohesion in that respect as well. So we have a lot of volunteers who don't swim. Really? Absolutely. I can count on the fingers of one hand the number of times I've seen some of them in the pool and still have plenty left over. So they're, they're involved for different reasons. And, and your Lido in Portishead is, uh, is community owned and run. Maybe talk to us a little bit about the benefits and challenges of that. What is the sort of unique aspect of, of that setup? What does that present you with? Well, if I start with the challenges and then we'll move on to the benefits, the more positive things, the the challenge, which I think we probably have in common with any volunteer organisation, is volunteers. Now, we are lucky that we do have a good sized pool of really dedicated volunteers, but they come and they go, which can make continuity of skills and knowledge quite difficult. In general terms, people lead busy lives and they think that they haven't necessarily got the time for volunteering. So while there are definitely some challenges involved with the resourcing side of it, the opportunities that a volunteer-run pool have are enormous. And, and, And some of those opportunities flow directly from another challenge, which is that we don't generally receive any public money. So we know as a sector that if we want to survive, we have to earn that money. 
And that's that's about putting people through the doors, making the turnstiles ring. So that makes volunteer run pools very entrepreneurial. They are always looking for different ideas, different ways to diversify what they do. They're not stuck in a model which is about swimming lessons at the after school time, lane sessions in the early morning and general swimming during the day that we, we, we couldn't survive if we did that. So as an example, at Portishead, we've introduced initiatives like full moon swimming. We started opening year round doing cold water swimming we do a cold water gala we've done open air cinema we've done all sorts of things to diversify what would you rather add open air cinema or full moon swimming combination i'd say so some kind of werewolf film in the lido i like the idea of full moon swimming that sounds great that sounds brilliant And, and i was going to ask you you know just to finish off um Anyone listening to this who wants to support their local Lido, if they have one, and uh, in a minute we're going to be talking about a campaign to set one up on Merseyside. But um, is is it to volunteer if it's a volunteer-run thing? Is that the best thing you can do? There are two things that you can do. The first one is absolutely to swim in them because it is your money going through the admission desk that is what will ultimately keep that pool afloat. And that's regardless of whether or not their local authority maintained or whether they're volunteer run. Please use them and use them when it's raining. Use them on those cold, wet Tuesday afternoons in June. That is absolutely what they're there for. And that is when they need you. If you have the time to volunteer and you really don't need special skills, then absolutely just get in touch with them and find out what kind of thing it is that they need and it needn't be you know you you can volunteer as much or as little as you like so definitely get in touch well thank you uh, so much for telling us uh, about portishead lido uh, and uh, everyone should go and read your book the lido guide emma pusel thank you pleasure well we are going to hear uh, about a fantastic campaign now from uh, it's its founder. Uh, this is Deborah Aiden, former executive director of the Everyman Theatre in Liverpool, founder of the People's Pool campaign. But more than that, uh, the the uh, the coiner of the phrase "people powered Lido revolution." Oh, I can't take full credit for that. Actually, it was Phil Bradby, who's the founder of the Save Grange Lido campaign, who started to call it a, a Lido revolution. Ah, I've just picked it up and run with it. But it certainly is people powered. So you you added the people powered bit. Yeah. It's definitely a Lido, not Lido, is it? It's whatever makes you happy. Well, start start by giving us the story behind the People's Pool campaign. And uh, what, it, what is it that you're after and, and how did it begin? Well, it started a few years ago and it was inspired by the huge rise of outdoor swimming over the last five or ten years. I'm very much a kind of armchair outdoor swimmer. I'm not a cold water swimmer like you, Ed. I'm much too nesh for that. Ed probably doesn't know the word nesh. Ah. They don't have it down south. Ah. Nesh is when you uh, feel the cold when it's not that cold. Ah. Yeah. Interesting. Sorry to interrupt, Deborah, but I thought I'd better, uh, better enlighten Ed and any, any southern listeners. Very important. Very important. Um, so, yeah, I've been very aware of the reopening of lots of Lidos around the country, including the one where I did my swimming badges when I was a kid in Banbury. Um, and here in the, in the Liverpool City region, we've got a huge heritage of outdoor pools. There were 11 Lidos around Merseyside. Some of them, like New Brighton and Southport, were among the most spectacular in the world. And there's a really deep social memory um, across the city region. And what it will be um, is a beautiful, inclusive and sustainable new Lido for the community. Um, a year-round pool, heated, sorry Ed, um, with sun decks for summer, hot tubs for winter, 
And then support facilities like great food and drink, maybe a spa, gym, outdoor exercise spaces, indoor exercise spaces. I know. Um, And spaces where the community can meet as well. So it should really be a community hub. That's crucially important. The plan is that it should be a community owned facility. So it's designed to meet the needs of our community in all of its diversity um, and a way to help to rebuild our physical, social, emotional and economic well-being after what we've all been through. Um, somewhere we can all come together and find some collective joy. Oh, it sounds fantastic. I mean, the historical links are interesting, the geographical. Uh, I suppose I'm particularly interested uh, in in what you were saying there about its community function in the recovery from the pandemic. Can you can you talk to us a bit more about that and what you think Alido would do for the the community? So the motivation behind the project way before the pandemic was about creating social and economic benefits for the community um, and making sure that it is as inclusive and accessible as possible, which Lido's, it's something that Lido's do. Um, there's a fantastic uh, quote from Roger Deakin, who's a beautiful writer on swimming and much else in Waterlog, which I really recommend to both of you. Lido's are to swimming pools as lingerie is to underwear. So there's a kind of luxurious, giddy, playful, sensual, joyous aspect to Lido's that doesn't come from just visiting your local swimming pool. Um, And there's somewhere that whatever age you are, whatever fitness level you are, whether you want to thrash up and down doing lengths and train for a triathlon or whether you just fancy dipping your toes in the pool and hanging out in the sun with your friends, it's, it's somewhere that is for everyone. Does that always happen? Do they uh, typically get used by people from across society? Are, are, are they sort of inherently inclusive or does stuff need to be done to convince people from different bits of the community that, that it's, uh, it's for them too? Yes, to both of those questions. Um, they are very inclusive and particularly Lido's are much more used by women than other sport, social sporting facilities because they don't have the stigma of sport. They're not as off-putting as being considered to be sporty unless you particularly fancy using them in that way. Um, it's somewhere that multiple generations of family can come together for a day out. If you're three, they're joyous. If you're 83, they're great for your knees. You know, it's, it's just a very inclusive space. But across swimming... Um, certain communities are incredibly underserved. So black and ethnic minority communities are barely visible in swimming. And I'm hoping that Alice Deering's participation in the Olympics will really help to to overcome some of that. There are some brilliant organisations doing really good work. The Black Swimming Association, Swim Den Crew in London, um, who are really doing a a lot of fantastic work towards equity in aquatics. Um, And our intention with the People's Pool is that we involve as many people as possible from as many communities as possible, um, particularly those who have been historically underserved, to make sure that their voices influence how the pool is designed, both physically, what the facility, how the facility works, how you encounter it, what it looks like, um, but also how it operates so that it does take into account lots of differing, differing needs. What happened to those, did you say 11 pools? What's, What's the story? Yeah, there were 11 and they were absolutely stunning. There were seven on the Wirral. Um, there was one in Southport, Ainsdale, Stanley Park in Liverpool. Um, and they all went the way of all flesh in the latter part of the 20th century. Um, part of the reason that the myth is that it's all about foreign holidays and people not wanting to, to swim locally. But actually, it's a bit more complicated than that. It was about funding cuts. It was about local authorities not being able to maintain them. Um, so they became less nice places to go. And so people started 
deserting them. Um, but the on Merseyside, um, where we had incredibly bad luck, is that they've all physically gone. So a lot of the Lidos that have been revived around the country were still there. And so, you know, the Heritage Lottery and others have been very supportive in enabling communities to reopen their Lidos. But ours have all gone and, and been built over. And, and just talk to us a little bit about the response on Merseyside. So obviously a place with a lot of uh, civic pride and, and uh, keenness to tap into the history that you mentioned. What, what has been the take up amongst people on Merseyside? Oh, it's been fantastic. I mean, this started as my when I win the lottery fantasy. And then when I thought about having a go, I wrote a handful of emails saying, look, I've got an idea. I need to find out if it's a midlife crisis or a project. Have you got time for a coffee? Um, and each of those conversations, first of all, went well, but they all led on to three or four others. And so, um, you know, almost three years on, it has to be said, I've got this huge network of about three or four hundred allies and potential partners and thousands of supporters on social media. And you can imagine with the recent hot weather, you know, the, the interest in getting in water has been has been off the scale. So uh, it's been a great moment to be talking about swimming and access to water in our in our very watery city region. Let's talk about funding. How much is this, um, what sounds like a fantastic project, going to cost? Um, well, the, I can't actually answer that question until we've got a site, until we've done the work. But as a ballpark figure, I think around 10 million. So we could have 100 new Lidos, all singing, all dancing, a la your thing for a billion quid. Write me the cheque and I'll give them to you. What do you think, Jeff, in the Jeffocracy? A hundred Lidos? Definitely. Imagine if you said a project of a hundred Lidos across the country. Yes, please. It'd be quite good, wouldn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, they, one of the great inspirations is Iceland, which is another topic of your podcast. Oh, yeah. Days gone by. Um, you know, they have, because they've got all this wonderful hot water coming straight out of the ground, they have a Lido, they have an outdoor pool in every community. And I visited, managed to get to Reykjavik last year, just before lockdown, and swam in the municipal pools. And they're open six in the morning till 10 at night, all year round. They're free if you're under six. They're free if you're over 65. And people go there in the same way that we go for a coffee or go to the pub, that people go to sit in the hot pots and chat and catch up. It's just a wonderfully everyday activity. So you, you need 10 million quid. You set up a social enterprise to drive the project forward. Where's the campaign now up to? And, and talk to us about the community ownership aspect of your, your plan. Because it is a community-owned facility, it's not a commercial um, development which can be built by a commercial developer and then it can extract profits out to its shareholders. The, it's very important that it's a community wealth-building project, that it keeps all of the benefits in the community and is able to respond to the community for the long term. Um, in terms of funding, as you can imagine, the last year has not been easy at all. Um, we had uh, a bit of investment from the Combined Authority and Wirral Council to develop the operating business model. Um, but then we had a bit of a setback at the beginning of this year. Uh, Wirral Council had included it in their master plan consultation for New Brighton, which is where one of the most beautiful Lidos in the world used to be. Um, and 90% of the community were in favour or strongly in favour of a Lido. Um, and they had approved another 67000 towards seed funding for feasibility work last year. Um, but unfortunately, earlier this year, it was withdrawn by a, by a committee um, uh, citing their budget budget challenges, particularly post pandemic, so that was a bit of a, a bit of a blow. But you know, even while withdrawing the seed funding, the councillors were very keen to stress that they were in favour of a Lido. So we're looking for a way to unlock that slight catch twenty two dilemma that we're in, where we can't move forward without funding, but we can't get them to release the funding until we move further forward. How can listeners in Merseyside support the campaign? And, and if people are listening to this and thinking, "Well, oh, I'd like to." do my own Lido campaign, a bit like Deborah's, what would you suggest? 
People who would like to get involved with supporting the People's Pool campaign, our website is peoplespool.co.uk and we're on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter at uh, at People's Pool. We've been tweeting out, uh, there's a survey running on the website where people can sign up there. And as you sign up, there's half a dozen questions asking how you'd use it, what benefits it would bring to you. And most particularly, what's your, your own personal reason for wanting a People's Pool on Merseyside? And the responses to that have just been fantastic. So we started tweeting one out each day with the hashtag People's Pool Voices. So, so get involved via the website and via social media. The more, the merrier. Um, and in terms of anyone thinking of setting up their own campaign, they can get in touch via the website and um, maybe we'll see them at a future Lido's group meeting at some time soon. What's your favourite Lido around the country? Oh, I've got lots of favourites because they've all got lots of different glorious idiosyncrasies so London Fields for a, a proper swim year round because it's heated when I can get there um Hathersage Lido is an absolute beauty in the Peak District it's got its own bandstand and it's set in um beautiful uh rolling hills um and then you know just the little village Lidos there's a lovely one in Hale in Cornwall which is free or very cheaply run um and uh and there's a clutch of little Lidos in the uh Eden Valley in the Lake District but they're, they're all wonderful in their own individual ways. Well, Deborah, it's been brilliant to talk to you. We wish you all the very best of luck with this People's Pool campaign. If there's somebody listening to this who fancies bunging 10 million your way. The email address is on the website. Please, please do get in touch. Deborah Aiden, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's been a real joy. Well, I think we've got a consensus for Lido. I, I love a Lido, as it turns out, without ever having knowingly set foot in one. Have you never set foot in one? I don't think so, because as I was saying, we didn't really have them when I was growing up. I've been in a paddling pool. I mean, it's similar, but it's not the same thing, is it? But I really want to go in a Lido now. And I think it's the heated aspect. I used to, when I would spend a lot of time in Sweden, I'd swim in the Baltic a lot, but I think I'm done with really cold water. Um, But if it was 18 or above, uh, Celsius that is, um, I'd be uh, I'd, I'd be really happy about that. I mean, the, the ponds at the moment are twenty four centigrade. You know, well Celsius, you mean? But that's not it's not often they get as high as that, is it? No, it isn't. I always say this whenever we cover anything with a history aspect on the podcast. But I love learning about you know the, the history yeah. of stuff, and I love that period in the early twentieth century where there's this idealism um, in in building these things for the public good, and I was. A little bit struck by when we were um, talking to Deborah and she said, we're looking for 10 million. And you said, oh, we should have 100 of them. It only cost a billion, which, yeah, I, I really like that idea. And I understand all the benefits of that. But could you in this day and age sell a billion pounds worth of outdoor swimming areas to the to the general public? I think you probably could, actually. But I think it's an interesting, interesting question about you know, public goods, private goods, you know, is it your private gyms, your private swimming pools, you know, which are expensive, or is it your public gliders? Now, I'm not saying that they're all going to be free, but, you know, so I think there is something interesting there. I think that there's a sort of, well, we've seen a massive rise in interest, haven't we, in this whole open water swimming, swimming, that sort of thing. Uh, and I, I quite like the sort of non, there aren't hard and fast rules. Both books have what would be called wild swimming, open water swimming places, not just Lake Bled in Slovenia. Um, 
uh, as you know, I think I think I quite like the Lido community. It seems to me to be very open and very sort of non-judgmental, don't you think? Well, it didn't sound like that from Alistair Campbell at the beginning of the pod- podcast, but maybe no. Well, he's obviously he's obviously the exception. This is the hardliner, but may- maybe you you are going to usher in a glorious new era where the pond life and the Lidoites can live as one. Sounds like a great vision for the Jeffocracy. Reasons to be cheerful, a podcast about ideas with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of nonstop hydration for silky, smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER. Well, as ever, we would love to hear from you. Tell us about your local Lido. We could get a cheerful Lido map of uh, of, of Great Britain yeah. and beyond where you do your Lido swimming. We could arrange for our listeners to, to meet each other for Lido mornings. We talk about the sociable aspect of a Lido. We could do a live show in a Lido on a full moon. Pandemic permitting. Yes, um, yes, 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 of course. We could we could do a tour. Lido tour. I, I would love that. I think I'm... Uh, I think I'm sold on the How idea. How do we do a live show in the Lido, do you think? On Lilo's. On Lilo's in the Lido. I've got a picture of the two of us on Lilo's sipping sort of pina coladas. I think that's a broadcasting. That's a beautiful picture. I think people would like to see that. Well, I'm quite the... sure how the where's the audience at this point? Are they all in the water? They're lane swimming around us. Uh, anyway, you can email us through the website. Uh, it's uh, cheerfulpodcast.com. This one comes from Anne Williams Bonnet, who says I can't help remarking on your reluctance to use your bike bells. 
I live in France and often go for long walks on the Versailles plain where bikers use the same paths as pedestrians. Most of the time, it's not that easy to hear that a bike is approaching from behind and none of these bikers warn us by ringing their bell at a reasonable distance before they pass. I often wonder if they step slightly to one side at that moment, uh, what catastrophe would happen? I often call out after them. Et votre sonnette! Pardon my French. Uh, what is the point of a bell if it isn't used? Yours cheerfully, Anne. Well, is that a philosophical question? Is it a deterrent? I don't know, but um, that's that's interesting that uh, the bell is less widely used in France. Have you got any more confident with your bell use? I used it the other day and uh, behind somebody who was also biking, I think, and it kind of slightly made him start. So, you know, you've got to be careful with the old bells. Mm-hmm. This one comes from Elizabeth Harper. I'm a long-time listener of the podcast. I wanted to email about the latest episode on a green transition, which I loved. What I couldn't help noticing is that every time we talk about green jobs, for example, in a conversation with Caroline Lucas and Hilary Benn, we immediately tend to think about technology and energy. These are, of course, very important, but there is an opportunity to go even further here in what we think of as green jobs. I read Naomi Klein's book, No Is Not Enough, and then on Fire the Burning Case for a Green New Deal. One of the most exciting parts of her analysis was the idea of restructuring economies around low-carbon work. This would mean expanding our definition of green jobs between the obvious mechanistic and typically masculine work this involves to other areas uh, like teaching, nursing, childcare, medicine, care work, mental health work, counselling, and more. Work that contributes so much to society with, with some of the least impact on the environment. Elizabeth, I completely agree with you. And the way we think about zero-carbon work and what the zero carbon economy looks like it isn't just about some of the ways we traditionally refer to it 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 absolutely is about care work and many of the other professions uh, that you mentioned so i think it's a really good and important point send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com find us on facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast we're in the outro. I know what I was going to ask you. The, today, as we're recording this, is the uh, the opening of the Olympics. And I was wondering, given what you were uh, doing in your job in 2012, did you get to go to loads of stuff? Yes. How was that? Great. I loved it. Were you there at the opening ceremony? Yes. I think. Oh, yes. No, I was. And we got lost on the bus. Me, Tessa Jowell, the head of the army, the... Uh, head of the Metropolitan Police and the bus driver got lost on the way to the opening ceremony. And Bo- Boris Johnson was on the bus too. Yeah, that's the one I re- thing I remember the most. And the late Tessa Jowell, who was a lovely person, swore us all to secrecy, at least for the duration of the Olympics, that we weren't going to say, yeah, the opening ceremony bus got lost on the way. <laughs> I think Tessa had to go up and sort of try and help the bus driver with the directions. It probably was quite difficult because of all the closed roads and all of that. That would be a great play. Yes. Set on that bus in those moments. Yes, that is true. I had a nice thing happen this week, by the way. John Kerry, the US climate envoy, came and did a speech at Kew Gardens and I had a chat with him and he gave me a nice shout out in his speech. Oh, that's good. Did he mention me? No. It's... I mean, it's another George Ezra, isn't it? It really <laughs> That's exactly what it is. I often liken the two. Um, we, should, we should thank our guests. Christopher Beanland. Emma Pusill and Deborah Aiden. Emma Corsham produces our podcast with all her audio wizardry. Joel Pierce 
uh, does all the research and finds the guests this week. He's had, I think, perhaps even more fun than usual looking into Lido's. Here is in Joel a Lido world. swimmer or not? He, Joel has done a bit of Lido swimming, yeah. yeah. Which Lido, Joel? Beckenham Place, Joel is saying. I don't know if you can or can't hear Joel, so I'm just passing it on. Um, a bit like when Sutty would speak to Matthew Corbett. He'd just whisper in his ear and then Matthew would relay it. That's what I think I might have to do with Joel. Does that make Joel Sutty? In, in this particular uh, analogy. Does that make me sweep? Yeah, well, yes, you, yeah, I think you could, be, you could be the sweep if you like. Oh. Let me keep going with the credits. Joel is, uh, is backed up by Joe Kenyon at Goldfish. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. James Deacon made our idents. Ed Seed composed the music. And our artwork was designed by... Henry Cole. He's been Pond Life. He's been a neo-Lidoite. <laughs> and these have been... Reasons to be cheerful. Save big money on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble, and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Save big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big.